0: This morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered... But where in this remote place can, we, can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have, Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The word of God.
1: Thank you, Lori. We've been looking at uh, the Gospel of Mark, one of the four Gospels that begin the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, a great place to go to discover who Jesus is and what he did, how he interacted with people, what was the focus of his time, how did he um, interact with the authorities in Israel. Uh, Mark is unusual. in that it is the simplest language in the New Testament. It was clearly written by a person who was not an educated person, and almost certainly this is the record that Peter, an illiterate fisherman, made of his encounter with Jesus. It's very direct. There's no gloss. There's no interpretation. He just records what he saw. Jesus did this, and then he said this, and then he did this, and then he went there. Very linear, very simple, very plain, and a great place to get an unvarnished picture of who Jesus is and what he did. And we've seen that what Jesus did was gather disciples. He gathers the twelve disciples. He begins to travel and teach them. Along the way, he reveals who he is by a series of miracles, what the Bible calls signs, pointing to Jesus and who he is. And the last few Sundays we've seen that Jesus breaks out of Israel. The early part of his ministry is around the Sea of Galilee. But then he leaves Israel and he goes into Gentile country, first to the north of Israel along the Mediterranean coast. And here he is uh, to the east of Israel, the eastern side of the Galilee. And this continues a series of miracles among the Gentile peoples. Jesus is showing us that his gospel, his ministry, is not just to Israel alone. Let's have a look at it. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, During those days, so this is continuing um, Jesus' journey in the Gentile world. They've crossed over the Sea of Galilee. They're to the east of Israel, to the east of the Sea of Galilee, amongst the Gentile people. And if you have been coming for a few Sundays, you know that Jesus here is repeating a miracle that he performed in Israel, where he fed 5,000 people. In fact, if you look at what Jesus does in the Gentile country, his exorcisms, his healing of the deaf and dumb man that we looked at last week, the feeding here, he is replicating the things that he did in Israel, outside of Israel, driving home the point that his ministry is to the world, not just to Israel. And another large crowd, this is the Gentile uh, world. Jesus' name is powerful and attractive beyond Israel. I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. 3 days in the wilderness. It must have been an incredible intense time of teaching. These were peasant people. This was the back in a time when transportation didn't exist. If you went somewhere you had to walk. There are no stores. If you go somewhere you have to provide your own food. You have to carry it. You have to bring food and water if you're going to spend 3 days in the wilderness. Why would ordinary peasant people give up the day-to-day struggle of their life to go and listen to Jesus for three days? It must have been a time of extraordinary teaching, a sort of Woodstock experience, a spiritual experience way beyond anything that they had experienced before. And it shows that ordinary people are on a faith journey. It's not just about survival. There is a hunger for the things of God. There is a hunger to discover more in life than just existing. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. There is an echo here of what God did with Israel in the book of Exodus. If you recall from Exodus, God brings Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery... And he takes them out into the wilderness, to the desert, and he brings them to Mount Sinai to teach them. And we read in Exodus, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. In Exodus, God brings... Israel, out into the wilderness, he teaches them, and he feeds them with manna. Now you might think I'm just overinterpreting here, trying to impose a good biblical narrative on what's happening, but we will see actually later in this same chapter, Jesus quizzes the disciples about these two uh, events: about the feeding in Israel of the five thousand. And the feeding here of the four thousand, he quizzes them, quizzes them about the numbers and what it means, and what it means, and how to interpret them. Jesus is not here by accident. Nothing that he is doing is just happening. Remember, Jesus' goal for three years was to teach his disciples, not just to preach at them, but to teach them how to be like him, to teach them how to interpret who he is and what he did so that they can become the Christian church, Christ's body on earth. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. They were genuinely hungry, hungry spiritually to hear from God, but also, physical hunger at a time when hunger was real. You couldn't just go to a fast food place. You couldn't just order Amazon Prime. If you didn't have food, you went hungry. If your crops didn't come in, you and your family, your whole village, would suffer famine. Hunger was an ever-present thing for these people. And yet, they are willing to go hungry to spend time with Jesus. Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has compassion on them, I think it's a reminder that Christianity is not, and Jesus, is not just a set of ideas, a philosophy, a set of rules, or a code of conduct. An aspect of Christianity that we can never let go of, Jesus summed it up when he was talking to the leaders of Israel. Love God with all your heart, mind, and soul, but also love your neighbor as yourself. Not a philosophy, not a code of conduct, set of rules, but an act of love, an act of having a relationship, being interested and willing to engage with the lives and the needs of people unlike yourself. In the New Testament, James, who was Christ's brother, wrote this. This is James' letter. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? By deeds, he means acts, acts of faith. Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Christianity is not a philosophy. It is a way of living. A way of living in relationship with God and with each other, with the people around us. And a paying attention to them. What do they need? What do they lack? It's a willingness to embrace every part of the other, to recognize that all human beings are brothers and sisters and be willing to address their hungers, their hurts, their troubles, their ills, to get involved, to care. And in fact if you look at the history of the church, Christian Christianity has always shown brightest when it is addressing the needs of those who are ignored or discarded or neglected by the world. There's a, a wonderful book uh, by a guy called Stark where he, he looks at the history of the Christian church and he tries to explain why did Christianity spread so quickly? Because it did. Once it got to the, into the Roman world, Within a few hundred years, it took over the known world. And he points out that back in early history, one of the biggest problems people had were plagues, disease. Cities had no plumbing. Cities had no sewage system. Cities were these dense uh, populations of people on top of each other. Disease, once it took hold, spread like wildfire. And periodically, the the history shows that in the Roman Empire, plagues, disease, illness would spread through regions. The rich would run away from the cities until it had burned out. The poor were stuck. The other people that were stuck, and this was noticed, were the Christians. Instead of running away, they would stay in the cities, and they would take care of each other, and they would take care of their neighbors, Nothing weird or supernatural. They would just feed people who couldn't feed themselves. They would keep them clean. they keep them washed. And these people tended to survive. Just the basics were enough to keep them alive back in that time. And they were impressed. They noticed that the Christian community cared about them in the way that their rulers and their elites did not. They all ran away. And so one of the great attractive forces in the early church was exactly this, caring, loving, being there for people who had need. Now, what does it mean that Jesus is performing these miracles? He was teaching his disciples, what, what actually is the meaning, the sign that this miracle is pointing to? Well, first of all, let's look at the mechanics of it. He wants to feed them, but his disciples answered, where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Seven, they replied. How does this miracle work? The disciples are aware enough of what is happening... To know that these people need to be fed. You know, Jesus said, I have a compassion on them, the hungry. How are we going to feed them? Well, how many loaves do you have? The disciples can find seven. They give them to Jesus. He called the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. The limited resource that the disciples, remember the disciples are going to become the church, the limited resources they have when offered through Christ to God will provide enough food for everyone, enough resource for everyone. And God, through Christ, gives the food back to the disciples and they distribute it. This is the essence of how things are going to work in the future, how the church is going to work. Faithful Christians, recognizing the needs of the world, looking to God for resource, whatever you have plus God equals enough to solve the problem. And then the people can be fed. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now, commentators go crazy about this part. When Jesus feeds the 5,000 in Israel, there are 12 baskets left over. Here, when he feeds 4,000, there are seven baskets left over. Later in the chapter, as, as I mentioned, Jesus will quiz the disciples about this, these events, and he will quiz them about the meaning of these numbers, 12 and 7. Clearly they're important, but what do they mean? And there's all kind of weird mystical answers, and I attempt to use this as a code to break the New Testament and reveal all kinds of Kabbalah-type stuff, and I've, I don't find it particularly convincing, but maybe some of you do. Um, Clearly, 12 is associated with Israel. You know, you have the 12 tribes of Israel that form Israel, and Jesus recruits 12 apostles to represent the new Israel. So you can clearly associate the 12 with Israel. But what about the seven here in the Gentile world? What could that mean? Well, in the Bible, seven is uh, seven days of, of the week that when God creates a good world. Seven is associated with completeness or perfection or wholeness. And some people say that this is sort of Jesus completing his ministry, going out into to the Gentile world and completing uh, his ministry. Um, once again, it's not too compelling. I think the best answer that I've seen is to associate the seven with the seven deacons that the apostles recruit and ordain to take care of the needs of the church. In the book of Acts, which is the book right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you get the book of Acts, which is the history of the Christian church. It tells you what happened next after Jesus returns to the Father. And we get this. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, this is the growth of the Christian church. The Hellenistic Jews... That is, the Jews who had come back to Israel from around the Gentile world and were Greek-speaking. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, uh, people who lived in Israel, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. That word, wait, is the word deacon. It means to serve. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men among among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn the responsibility over to them. This proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose seven. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread... The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That last line is important. In Israel, at the temple, it was the job of the priests to take care of people. Israel tithed money and food and resources to the temple, and the priests used that those resources to take care of the widows and the poor and the disadvantaged and the sick. The priests were sort of the doctor, social worker, care agents of Israel. And when they saw this new group, the Christian church, taking care of people, distributing food, taking care of the needy, they recognized that this is of God. And so a large number of priests become Christians. Twelve apostles, seven deacons, gives you a complete church, the complete picture. Spreading the word of God, using the power of the spirit, but also taking care of the needs of the people. This is what the Christian church looks like in its fullness. I think that that's the best explanation of what Jesus is doing here a complete, perfect Christian church that is going to be based on the 12 disciples, is going to minister beyond Israel to the Gentile world, and is going to take care of the needs of the people. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmuthana. So in in Israel, he feeds 5,000. Here in the Gentile world, he feeds 4,000. Why? Well, I'm up here doing all this work. You tell me. This is going to be your homework. I'm going to be gone for four Sundays. When I come back, you're going to tell me. Why 5,000 in Israel? Why 4,000 in the Gentile world? What's the theological significance of those numbers? I do not know you are going to tell me, right? What is the major thing that is being taught here? What is Jesus up to? Well, he's teaching his disciples. He is revealing to them who he is. We've seen them recruit them and lead them on this journey inside Israel, healing people, encountering the Pharisees, going beyond Israel to the Gentile world. It's all about teaching the disciples who he is. In fact, we will see, he spends three years doing this. He is trying to help them understand who he really is. And who he really is is mind-blowing. It's astonishing. Um, He's an ordinary man. He grew up as a carpenter. But his claim is, I am God. I'm the one who created you. I'm the one who created everything that you can see. I'm the one who created all the stars in the night sky. That is a hard thing to accept. And it takes Jesus three years of teaching to get the disciples to the place where Peter finally confesses to Jesus that he is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. And immediately at that point, after three years of teaching, Jesus goes straight to Jerusalem and to the cross. His work is done. So the primary task that Jesus takes on is teaching these 12 who he really is so they can confess him, so they can witness him. Why did God come into the world? Why did he show up as a man? Well, because human beings face a problem. And by the way, I'm, I'm saying these things to help interpret this particular story. What Jesus was up to. As soon as we become old enough to be aware, we realize that human life is haunted by death. It's the big enemy. We see family members, grandparents, distant cousins, aunts and uncles, eventually even our parents. We watch them grow old. We watch them grow frail. We watch the vitality seep out of them. And then we see them die. Think of all the deaths you you have seen watching movies and TV shows, in in, uh, video games. Think of how death saturates our culture. What are we going to do about it? Everything, from the moment we become aware, tells us that we are fragile creatures. That our life is not forever. That one day, that life will go out. The Psalms put it this way. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. It's human life. Think, by the way, of all the billions of human beings that have ever lived. How many names were recorded of all those billions? What memory is there there of most human lives? James says this What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The lives that we live, that we are so proud of, our material bodies, everything that we are, is like a mist. And one day, it's just going to blow away. And there's nothing that we can do about it. That is the fundamental human problem. And so Jesus shows up into this world, this world of misty beings. He shows up, and he gives us a different way of thinking about our life. In the book of Hebrews, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. There are so many ideas in that verse. It's a wonderful verse. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. I just want to take one idea from that to help flesh out, literally, what does it mean that Jesus feeds people. Well, that word glory, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. That is, the sun shines God's glory to the darkness of the world. The root word for glory is a Hebrew word, kawabah. In English, it means weightiness, substance, significance, meaning, what's important. And so God's glory is his eternal significance. The fact that he is eternal. The fact that his word is behind all material creation. And so we have two ideas here. God's glory, God, is significant. The source of all things, sustaining all things by his word. That's one idea. The other idea is this idea that the world and human life is ephemeral, is temporary. It's like a morning mist. It will go away. Now, typically, the world sees that in the opposite order. The material world, everything that we see, is what's important, what's significant, what we spend our lives chasing after. And the things of God, spiritual things, they are what's ephemeral, ghostly, fleeting, not literally substantial, not substance, can be ignored, can be tucked away into the corner of people's private lives because they don't have any real significance in the real world of things. So what is the Bible, what is the gospel inviting us to do? It is inviting us to change the order of things. In a moment we're going to go to this table And I'm going to tell you that the bread is Christ's body and that the cup is Christ's blood. Right now, they're just material things. Ordinary bread, ordinary wine. But they point, they are a sign, they reveal a truth, a spiritual truth. Jesus says this, this is the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here, he's talking about himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and will not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. We are like a mist. We are temporary, ephemeral. Our lives will be blown away. And by the way, the storm is coming. Our lives are very temporary, fragile. How can we become something more? We can eat Christ's substance. We can receive his spiritual life. We can turn the mist in to something eternal, something spiritually significant. We will become something new, a new kind of being, no longer a mist that will fade away or get blown away, but now, through Christ and his life, something substantial, eternal, important, weighty, something that has significance because it's going to last forever. How do you receive this gift? By believing what Jesus is saying. By putting faith in what he is saying. A little later in uh, in Hebrews, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. We are material beings and we do not see spiritual things. But Christ who is God-shown-up in our material world, says, I am God, and I am the bread. And when you eat me, when you receive my spirit, you become part of my family. You become like me, eternal. No longer dependent on your material bodies, which are subject to decay, but dependent only on my promise dependent only on the divine life which I give because Christ is the source of all life. That's what this table is all about. It is the gospel, the good news, made visible. Come to this table in faith in the person that it represents. Eat in faith the body and blood of Christ and you will receive him and his spiritual body, and his spiritual life. That's the transaction here. What do you need? Only faith. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how many times you've read the Bible, how many times you've been to church. It doesn't matter how you mistreated somebody in your life or spoke sharply to your children or whatever you did. It's completely irrelevant. The only thing that matters is your faith in this moment and what Jesus says, this bread and this cup are. And if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, if you have no other hope, if you are hopeless, as long as you have a little bit of faith in what Jesus is saying, you'll be fed right here. You'll receive him. His spirit will take up residence in you. You will feel your life more significant, more weighty. You will become a more significant human being. Because now you shine with God's glory. You witness his glory to the world. That's what it's all about. And I suggest to you that's what these stories are about. Jesus is educating his disciples and he's educating us, allowing us to interpret who he is so that we can share him with others. That's our job. Let's pray.